All right, um, as we jump into the story tonight, we're going to be dealing with primarily critical race theory and then making our way into some of the specific theological reflection over these last few weeks that we have been dealing with. But as we jump into it, as we sort of pull off of everything we talked about last week, we talked about critical theory and the Frankfurt School and those individuals and what this vocabulary going on around us means. And we looked at weird cereal boxes. I keep on trying to come up with weird things to show you every week. And I think I have another one for you tonight. So and we'll, have, we'll have to make sure that all of this works well this evening. But as we do that, I want to make sure that we all understand what I am trying to do and what I am not trying to do with this particular study. So I believe, and I think it's just clearly obvious, that there is plenty of injustice in this world around us. There's plenty of injustice in culture. There's plenty of uh, sin inside of the human heart. So when we begin to analyze and critique things like critical race theory and we talk about um, ethnic differences and race relations and racism, we are not saying that there's no such thing as racism in the world around us. We're asking the question, what's the best way of understanding it and addressing it and dealing with it? So I just want to make sure that we're clear on some of those kinds of issues. So what we're trying to say um, over these last few weeks and especially tonight is that these schools of thought called critical theory and then tonight critical race theory, one of its uh, it's not a stepchild, it's a direct biological, ideological child of critical theory. Critical race theory, both of these things misdiagnose the problem and they give us the wrong solutions. We're going to discover, and if any of you are news junkies or you see enough headlines, you sort of see how these pieces of our culture are resegregating themselves down ethnic and racial lines. That's a direct result of critical race theory. So instead of pulling down walls of hostility, there are portions of our culture that are rebuilding these walls between um, people of color. The POC, you see that acronym a lot out there, persons of color, and then just white people, right? So these walls continue to get built. That's a direct result of critical race theory. And we're going to talk about how and why that happens tonight. There is a typical pattern with how critical race theory presents itself. And it's really clever. And it's so clever that by the time they get to the end of their story or of their argument, they want everybody in the room to go, yeah, you're right. That's ab you're, absolutely, you're absolutely right. Um, there's no questioning your solution to the problem. But it's, it's a shell game. Um, the way that it's often presented to us. So here is how critical race theory is often presented to people to get us to accept their solutions, to accept their ideology. So the common pattern with CRT, we're just CRT, critical race theory, the common pattern with CRT analysis is that we recount past racism. So we talk about what's happened in the past, the recent past or the distant past. Right? So we do either, and we talk about racism in the past, 
or we will tell a hypothetical story. I don't mean that in a negative sense, but we tell a sort of hypothetical story. Well, imagine if you had this happen to you and you had this kind of skin color, how would you feel? If you were white, you would not think this is racism. If you were a person of color, you would know that it is racism. So they'll tell these kinds of stories as well. And then they will get us to feel as if this is endemic. It is all over the place. And then they have the one and only solution that will address and solve all of those issues. The phrase systemic racism comes out of this kind of story. We're going to be able to tell you stories that are going to prove to you that it's everywhere, in every system, in every white person, in every interaction. So here's the solution. So that's a very common way of presenting um, CRT and why they believe that it is, it is the correct way of dealing things with things. So then the important question for the Christian, the important question for the follower of Jesus Christ is, well, what is CRT? What do they see? What do they think? What are their ideas? And if we try to understand their ideas, if we read their theorists, if we read their articles and read their books, what do they say about reality? And does it cohere with, does it line up with our understanding of Scripture, the gospel, everything that God has given us, how God has created us, what Jesus and Paul say about these kinds of things? Does it line up or does it contradict? Those are the important questions for followers of Jesus Christ when these great big worldview systems present themselves to us, saying this is the solution, everybody. And a lot of folks in 2020 just sort of jumped right on board and said, you know what, you're right. This is the solution. So we're just going to follow you as, as far as you go, and we're not going to ask a lot of questions. And it's caused a lot of problems. But justice is a function of the character and the will of God, not of any brand of political utopianism. So for the follower of Jesus Christ, when we're actually dealing with, well, what do we mean by justice? How does justice work? How does it work out amongst us and in our relationships and in our systems? We begin with the character and nature of God and the revealed will of God. Scripture has a lot to say about what justice is and what justice means. Let's see here. Meg, did we lose a little bit of a signal? Okay, we are restarting. We can make this happen. You guys have the, uh, the, the things in front of you as well. A couple of passages from Isaiah so that we can see two things, okay? Isaiah is, is very good on justice. It's not just Isaiah, but Isaiah is very good on this topic. So in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, here's a little bit of what Isaiah says. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. So scripture has a lot of this kind of thing in it. There is injustice. We need to plead the widow's cause. We need to take care of the poor and of the oppressed and what the Old Testament often calls the sojourner or the foreigner among us. So God intends us to be people of justice. So Scripture is full of exactly those kinds of things. But then Scripture fleshes that out for us even more. 
a little bit later in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 5, verses 15 through 17 say this. Man is humbled, and each one is brought low, and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Then shall the lambs graze as in their pasture, and nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich." Man is humbled and each one is brought low before God and his holiness and who he is. And in our attempts at wisdom and concocting our own schemes, when those things flesh out, we are humbled and we are brought low. But God is glorified. He's magnified in justice. And he is made holy in righteousness. And both of those terms are terms, justice and righteousness, that are connected directly to, well, who is God? What is God like? What is his character like? And when that becomes evident among us, his justice, his righteousness, that is when he is exalted. And then this last little portion of those verses, and that is when human beings flourish. That's when we come the closest to thriving here on earth is when the justice and the righteousness of God is actually done among us, all right? So justice, a, a, a serious thing inside of Scripture but understanding what we mean by that is so incredibly important. A couple of other reminders as well. Um, I read again this passage of Scripture this morning from Proverbs chapter 29, verse 26. Many seek the face of a ruler, but it is from the Lord that a man gets justice. So many people go after human beings who have certain kinds of earthly power, and we're seeking righteousness and justice. But the writer of Proverbs says, ultimately, it is from the face of the Lord, from the work of the Lord, that we will find justice. And then, and, and especially given this, this topic and sometimes how um, crazy and interesting it can get, I want to make sure that we reread this passage of Scripture and we understand what we're dealing with here. So when we deal with ideologies that I believe in the end are radically destructive, we need to remember with whom we do battle, right? So I want to read again this Ephesians chapter 6 passage um, so that we know exactly what we're dealing with when we deal with ideas like this. So in Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10, Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So the things that our enemy is at work doing, there's under the surface. He's actually very good at it. He's going to be able to deceive a lot of people. He says, I need you to do some work so that you can stand, so that you don't fall for any of this. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, Karl Marx and Antonio Gramsci, but we wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So we have to remember this is what is at work. When we deal with these ideologies, we in the end are dealing with either the gospel of Jesus Christ or a deception, a scheme of the devil designed to deceive people. And a lot, a, a lot of broken people are very deceived. Um, and in fact, that's the, one of the, pic the, the picture I have for you tonight is, is crazy and wild, but we see in this picture a broken, broken human being who's been deceived. Therefore, 
Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, therefore having fastened on the belt of truth, so this is where we begin is truth itself, and having the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, have, having put on the readiness of the God, given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Keep your eyes open, keep on praying. Put on the armor of God and don't be deceived by what the enemy is doing, all right? This is important stuff for us to, to see and understand. So let's talk about critical race theory specifically and some of its consequences, especially its theological consequences. Now, some of you may have seen this. I mentioned this to Heather, and Heather said she actually saw, um, she actually saw this. So this poor young man... He's a white kid in the UK. He's just a British white kid who believes that he is a Korean trapped in a white guy's body. So he's gone through surgery to have his eyes surgically changed to look more Korean as opposed to Western European. So he's posted a couple of post-surgery videos. This happened to be a shot of one of those videos. Uh, it's this, this is, and so what he has done has prompted another term and talk about another trend. Instead of transgenderism, he's not changing genders, he's changing ethnicities. Is this trans-ethnism or is this trans-racism? I can actually change which, which ethnicity I am. I am a I'm a Korean trapped in a British body. And then also to believe that if I do a couple of cosmetic surgeries on myself, that suddenly I'm Korean now. How many of you have heard of, and this doesn't count for Danny because I know he's probably heard of this, how many of you have heard of body dysmorphic disorder? Body dysmorphic disorder is, is an actual condition. It's been an understood and diagnosed condition for a long time. The Johns Hopkins University website describes it as a mental condition in which someone has a kind of obsession with a part of their body, a small, uh, a small imperfection or what they believe is an imperfection or even something large like a limb, and they feel disconnected from it, and they, they feel like it doesn't belong to them. And it can be as small as some small imperfection, or it can sometimes actually be, I don't like my left arm. Um, and so it's a mental condition that they feel disconnected from their bodies somehow. Some of them try to go through surgical change to try to get rid of that feeling like this is not really what's going, this is not really who I am. So why do we hear about transgenderism and we don't hear about body dysmorphic disorder? Right? So that's an important question to ask. I'll just, lay that one, I'll just lay that one out on your laps again as well. But um, that is probably part of what's going on with this kid, but his parents and his doctors decided that this was the solution for him. So again, quite a stunning thing to see, but um, something that uh, we understand what's going on behind all of it. 
All right, critical race theory. I put that up there because it's part of the larger package as we keep moving, I think we'll see. But um, critical race theory, so what are we talking about? Let's try to define it, let's try to understand it. So critical race theory, this is the child of critical theory. So the umbrella school of critical theory has given birth to several different other schools of thought, um, one of which that we know the most about is this critical race theory um, it is turned into the colloquial term that people use sometimes. Uh, they say, uh, they talk about being woke, not awake, but woke. That comes out of the critical race theory world. We hear it most often in terms of the diversity training that organizations and corporations and, and military, you know, that people go through. That is the result now of critical race theory and its leaders and so forth. A lot of school curriculum has a lot of this stuff in it. So what is it and what's going on? So we have traced up to this point the history of ideas that gets us into critical theory. So we've walked from Karl Marx to Antonio Gramsci to the Frankfurt School into the mid-20th century. And now we find ourselves among people who have been writing for the last 40 or 50 years in the world of critical race theory. So again, this isn't something brand new, it's just language that most of us are hearing for the first time in the last year, year and a half, two years or so. But critical race theory is a direct offshoot of that school of thought. And it is now applied specifically to structures of power and outcomes among races, equity, not equality. We'll talk about that a little bit further this evening. When you see the language, the vocabulary of equity being used, where you might naturally think the language of um, the vocabulary of, of equality should be used, that's on purpose. Because in the world of critical race theory, those are two different things, and we'll talk about that in a second. But it is now, the school of thought is now applied specifically to structures of power and outcomes not opportunities, but outcomes among different races, genders, and sexual preferences. So let's open up the Encyclopedia Britannica, the semi-academic kind of version of it. Again, this isn't a Christian um, trying to describe this. This is just a generalized description of critical race theory. And so this is their entry. It is an intellectual movement in loosely organized framework of legal analysis based on the premise, okay, now listen to this, that race is not a natural, biologically grounded feature of physically distinct subgroups of human beings, but a socially constructed or culturally invented category that is used to oppress and exploit people of color. Critical race theorists hold that the law and legal institutions in the United States are inherently racist insofar as they function to create and maintain social, economic, and political inequalities between whites and non-whites, especially African Americans. So that's, that's a lot. That's a lot. First thing you need to know is that the term racism and the concept of different races 
Whereas when you and I hear that language, you know, we think of people from different nationalities with different skin colors. This is kind of how we think of racism and we shouldn't be racist. But you should know that about 150 years ago, a European scientist developed a school of thought saying that white people were a different race, a different species than people who had darker skin color. And he used that as what they called scientific racism. So it was a scientific reason 150 years ago to say that people who had darker skin color simply were subhuman. Okay, so when we use the term racism, it's, a, it's, it's, like an, it's like an appendix in our vocabulary. We still use it, but it comes from this kind of really rotten place. The biblical term is ethnicity or ethnos. When the, when the language of Scripture speaks of nationalities, it doesn't speak of races, different species of people. It speaks of different nationalities of individuals. They get separated at the Tower of Babel. The Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 17 tells those in Athens that God is actually preordained where all of the ethnos will live and the boundaries of their habitations. So the spreading of ethnicities around the globe is actually part of God's sovereign plan. So technically, when you talk about race or when that language is used, it comes from a bad place. The vast majority of people who use that language aren't thinking in terms of the scientific racism of 150 years ago, okay? So when the entry here talks about that kind of distinction, there is this element of truth to it, but what critical race theory does with that is it takes that element of truth and plants it in poison soil so that it grows poison plants. What they mean by the races are socially constructed things is they're, they're not talking about scientific races and they're talking about the difference in ethnicities. So any sort of difference between the ethnicities that is perceived is a socially constructed thing by white people for the purpose of white people and for the benefit of white people. Now, that sounds a little bit forward, may seem a little uncomfortable, but the more we walk through this, more, the more we'll actually listen to that language come out of their own theorists and their own leading thinkers and the New York Times bestsellers and so on and so forth. So, here's this definition of critical race theory. Notice as well that it calls itself a legal theory. And sure enough, just before the first um, writers inside of the critical race theory world show up, they come out of a school of thought called critical legal theory. Okay? So it is at its root a legal theory believing that the way Westerners see law is actually racist. It's about equality, not equity. And if you are about equality, that's racist. Equity is the anti-racist way of seeing things. Okay, so let's, let's keep unpacking this a little bit. All right. So this textbook, um, this, this is written to be an undergraduate-level textbook just called Critical Race Theory. It's on its third edition now. Uh, Delgado, Richard Del Delgado is one of the original minds behind the development of critical race theory and what it actually is. So he's an academician. Um, I'm not reading to you from, again, a grumpy group of Christians. 
Um, I'm reading to you from the people who themselves have defined the field. So it's co-authored by um, both his academic partner and I think she's also kind of a life partner of his. But this is the first paragraph in the book that defines critical race theory as far as they are concerned. Um, so we'll, we'll read this and then we'll unpack this a little bit. Because it's a, you know, a 200-page textbook. This is the very beginning. And the rest of the book unpacks the rest of this force and what they mean by these terms. So let's try to make sense of this for a second. So the critical race theory movement is a collection of activists and scholars engaged in studying and transforming the relationship among race, racism, and power. The movement considers many of the same issues that conventional civil rights and ethnic studies discourses take up, but places them in a broader perspective that includes economics, history, setting, group and self-interest, and emotions in the unconscious. Unlike traditional civil rights discourse, which stresses incrementalism and step-by-step -step progress, critical race theory questions the very foundation of the liberal order, including equality theory, legal reasoning, enlightenment rationalism, and neutral principles of constitutional law. You might remember last week I said that these theories aren't trying to fix some things around the edges. They're not saying, most of it's pretty good. We're sort of headed in the right direction. We've got some of the big ideas right. We've just got a few of these things on the fringes wrong. It's not what they're saying. They're saying the very core of how we are doing life is completely wrong. So we've got to change all of that. So let's unpack that paragraph just for a little while to try to make sense of sort of what's coming inside of his book and what's coming with some of the other stuff we're going to deal with tonight. Uh, the CRT movement is a collection of activists and scholars, so they recognize early on that it's not just um, we're writing our peer-reviewed papers amongst each other and a few books that we're going to, you know, sell to each other so that we can teach our classes at the other university across, you know, it's not just us, but we consider this to be a matter of activism as well. So we need people in the streets, we need politicians, we need journalists, we need agitators, we need activists to actually make this happen. So the point is not to just write some papers and books. The point is actually begin to change things, to agitate. So one of the pieces of vocabulary that we've, we, from, the, from the very beginning of the study, that we said we have to keep our eye on is the vocabulary of revolution. That the incrementalist change is the wrong change. Things are wrong at such a core level that the only way to do it is through revolution. So without using that language, it's inside of this definition already. A collection of activists and scholars engaged in studying and transforming the relationship among race, racism, and power. And even if you're being charitable at this moment, you're thinking, okay, okay, there's, you know, there's problems out there. There's some people paying attention to them. So all right, some things need to change. We're going to transform some of these things. But the, 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 the critical thinking question always has to happen next. What's the, what's the next critical thinking question at a point like this? 
what do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? You're going to study it, okay. You're going to transform it into what? Hope and change. Change into what? These are, the, these are the critical thinking questions, right? What do you mean by that? <clears throat> so the movement considers many of the same issues that the conventional civil rights and ethnic studies discourses. So what they mean by conventional uh, um, civil rights discourse is what we would think of as sort of that group of people and movement around somebody like Martin Luther King Jr. Um, it, is, it is love that overcomes hate. Um, letter from a Birmingham jail. Um, you have to be theologically educated to write that letter. Um, you know, he eschewed violence. They got change done, but it was incremental change. And then you end up with civil rights legislation that sort of comes out of that movement alongside the Martin Luther King Jr. movement. You also have the radical revolutionary movement, um, the, the SDS and the Black Panther movement, where they don't want the incremental change, they want the revolutionary change. So critical race theory is saying, we're thinking about the same kinds of things, but we don't like the way that they did it. We like the way that the other people did it. So we're after different things in different ways. <clears throat> Uh, conventional civil rights and ethnic studies discourses take up, but what we do is we place them in the broader perspective that includes, okay, you know, so one of the th themes that's going to come out of this, where we're headed tonight is this dawning realization that this is a totalizing narrative. This narrative is intended to explain and handle everything. And by everything, I mean Almost every, I mean everything, right? Not almost everything, everything. <laughs> I'll, I'll talk about that later on. The perspective that includes economics. Well, I wonder whose economics? I wonder what kind of economics. I wonder if any of it might be related to the way Karl Marx talked about economics. Or socialists and communists talk about, of course it has everything to do with Marxist economics. So they use the word, but then later on through the book and the rest of the study, we're, oh, that's what you mean by economics. History. So they're going to redo history. They're going to look at history through different lenses. They're going to make different sense of history. They're going to emphasize different things in history. Thus, we get things in our current age, like the 1619 Project. Some of you have heard about this. It's this great big journalistic and historical project that was published by the New York Times, won the Pulitzer Prize, um, it was made a big deal of, um, and it's been, it, it's been dealt with and debunked in all kinds of different ways, but it has already been turned into school curriculum and so on and so forth. The 1619 Project's stated goal was to move the founding of the American experience from the Declaration of Independence in 1776 to the arrival of the first slaves, black slaves, on our shores in 1619. So the original formational concept of this white culture isn't the Declaration of Independence, it is slavery and racism. So that's the, that's the stated goal of the 1619 Project. So we're going to take these issues and we're going to put it into a broader historical perspective. So that's what comes out of this. That's what, part of what they mean by this. Setting, group, and self-interest. 
in the end, that's more of a sense of group versus self-interest. Critical race theory is going to divide people up according to the color of their skin, and they're going to define individuals according to the group. So they're going to put a label on a group, and an individual is supposed to fit inside of that group based on the color of their skin and their background. Okay, so we're going to get to talk about the language of whiteness and what that means later on, but that is their sense that we're not dealing with individuals, we're dealing with groups. And then the all-exciting emotions and the unconscious. You may remember that that whole theory of uh, the whole group of people called the Frankfurt School who developed critical theory, they wanted to put together Karl Marx and Sigmund Freud. So they were Freudian Marxists. So this is how they described themselves. Put two poisons together, it's got to, you know, level itself out and suddenly it's safe to drink, right? So the unconscious world of Freud and psychoanalysis gets pulled into critical race theory. And part of the magic that you get to do when you pull that kind of theory into your worldview is you get to point at other people and say, I know what you're thinking and you don't. I don't care what you tell me you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. I can see the color of your skin. I know who you are. That's part of the magic of what happens when you pull these things into your theory, and it is what ends up happening with what they write and with what they do. And then unlike traditional civil rights discord, which stresses incrementalism and step-by-step -step progress, critical race theory questions the very foundations of the liberal order, and they don't mean Democrats. The liberal order is the classical liberal order. Free market economy, um, civility, rational thought and discourse among people, a town hall model of citizens gathering together to work over their differences and come up with what's best for their city and for their neighborhood. That's classical liberalism. That's what they mean by liberalism. That's what they believe is inherently oppressive and racist. So they want to question the very foundations of the liberal order, including equality theory or Every human person is equal before the law. That's what they mean by equality theory. They want to question that. Legal reasoning, the rule of law, that uh, all of us stand before um, uh, justice and she's got the blindfold on. She can't see you. They're just weighing this according to what the law says and what is the most, you know, the, you know, the, the, the just thing for us to do. All right? That's the ideal what they're arguing, what they're literally arguing, is that's racist. We're questioning that, and we want to tear that down. Enlightenment rationalism, being able to talk about objective rational order, being able to talk about objective moral or religious things, all of that is racist. All of that is oppressive. We have to tear all of that down. And neutral principles of constitutional law. Um, the thing that sort of holds the nation together at its core is it or is it not constitutional? They say all of that is bunk. All of that is racist. We have to tear it down. And I'm going to give you this evening the leading proposed constitutional amendment to fix systemic racism tonight. So, you know, we have the solution in our notes this evening. I just want you to know that, right? I don't let you people leave empty-handed here, okay? So we unpack that. We're trying to understand what this means, and we're getting this sense of, man, alive. This is, 
This is everything, critical race theory. It's not just some people are mean to other people and that needs to stop. It's everything. Literally, one and a half, two pages later, they say this again about critical race theory. As the reader will see, and they're talking about how it's going to unfold throughout the book, critical race theory builds on the insights of two previous movements, critical legal studies and radical feminism, to both of which it owes a large debt. It also owes, or excuse me, it also draws from certain European philosophers and theorists, such as, there he is, Antonio Gramsci, Michel Foucault, and Jacques Derrida. I can pronounce very few French words. Those are some of them, so there you go. I get excited when I get, get to do that. So Antonio Gramsci, we know this dude. He's a Marxist. He was in prison because he was a communist. He is the one who gives us what we call cultural Marxism. He is the one who argued before we can start shooting people in the streets, we have to go through the institutions and change education and media and politics and churches. We need to pull them apart from the inside and then the political revolution can happen. These people are telling us in a sophomore textbook, we owe a lot to Antonio Gramsci and everything that he wrote. And then they go on to list these, these just beautiful people of, of European history, Michel Foucault and Jacques Derrida. Uh, does anything else need to be said besides they're French philosophers? So I did my graduate work um, on the leading American-born postmodern philosopher. His name was Richard Rorty. But as soon as you start getting into postmodernism and postmodern philosophy, you immediately start reading people like Michel Foucault and Jacques Derrida. So both of them are French postmodernists. So there is no objective reality. There is no objective truth. So these guys are famous for all kinds of different things. But for our purposes tonight, things like if you tell somebody that something is true, the use of truth with someone else, in a con someone else in a conversation is an act of oppressive power. So the, the work of Christian missionaries was as bad as it could possibly be because you've got Christian missionaries, a lot of them white, European, and American, traveling across the globe telling people they need to come to know Jesus Christ in order to be saved. That is an act of power and oppression because there's no such thing as absolute truth. So the postmodern world just pulls all of that to pieces. Jacques Derrida is a literary postmodernist. So here's what that means. He taught that the meaning of a text is not, among the many of the things he taught, he taught that the meaning of the text was not in the intent of the author, but the experience of the reader. So the book only means what you take it to mean because we cannot understand the intent of the author. Is there any of that going on inside of biblical interpretation today, I wonder? So again, these names that most of us have maybe heard once or have never heard before, we're living in their world. And by the way, both of them were also um, sexual degenerates, but that, yeah, they're French philosophers. What else are you going to, you know, what else are you going to say? <clears throat> so again, coming out of their own textbook, their own language, 
Okay, we're trying to understand how they describe themselves. A little bit later on inside of the book, we get... Um, Maggie, if you, oh, there we go. Nice. Four of the key presuppositions. A couple of these will make sense to us. So this is what CRT is based on as far as they are concerned. Racism is normal. It is the way that society does business in the common everyday experience of persons of color in America. In other words, and again, this is not an exaggeration. This is the way it gets fleshed out inside of their literature. Everything a person of color experiences from a white person is, by definition, racist. It's racism. Because whiteness is, by definition, an oppressive disposition. So they're trying to say, they're trying to get us to understand that everything a person of color experiences in the American and Western world is, by definition, racist. It's just normal. It was something they call convergence theory. Racism advances the interests of whites, so that's why whites are mean to others, and whites only oppose racism when it advances their interests. So it's this beautiful little position to be in. If you're acting like a racist, you're a racist. If you're not acting like a racist, guess what? You're a racist. You're against racism and actually pouring your life into something like that or dying on the battlefield to end something like slavery, guess what? You're a racist. It's just how it works. So whiteness is a disposition of oppression. Inside of this worldview, we're going to discover that racism is the original sin, and there's no forgiveness, and there's no restoration. The word in their world that replaces repentance and reconciliation, can anybody take a guess? It's reparation. So reparations replace forgiveness and reconciliation. That's how you reconcile, or reparations. So this, again, this theory is changing things at the very, very core of things. Anti-liberalism, again, classical liberalism, political liberalism. Anti-classical liberalism, rationalism, merit, legal reasoning, Neutral constitutional principles are all to be rejected as tools of white privilege and power. Again, this just comes right out of their book. And, then, and we've talked about this briefly before as well. Knowledge is socially constructed. So this also means that truth is socially constructed. Knowledge is socially constructed. There's no such thing as objective truth. If you say so, it is part of your oppressive stance. Storytelling and narrative are the natural ways that persons of color for them to express their experience. Science, reason, logic, etc., are all examples of systemic racism. So the, the STEM courses at your local university, according to this theory, are just examples of how we are systemically racist. Um, crazy, crazy things get said because of this point of view. <clears throat> how many of you have heard of Ibram X. Kendi? Okay, so his middle name is Henry. It, I don't know where the X comes from, but uh, Ibram X. Kendi, um, he is quite the dude. So he, uh, he has, a, he, he has a, an academic position at Boston University. He's the Andrew W. Mellon Professor in the Humanities at Boston University and the director of the BU Center of Anti-Racist Research. Because of his writing and because of his speaking, he has been the recipient of hundreds of millions of dollars of donations into his center at BU, especially through Silicon Valley. Um, so rather famously, 
um, Jack Dorsey and uh, the Facebook guy, his name is escaping me, Zuckerberg. Um, these guys and other gigantic organizations um, give a lot of money to Kendi's work and the, work that, the works that Kendi um, endorses and so forth. Now, why would they do that? Well, there's a million reasons why you would do that. But one reason you would do that is that that is the only way that you can express regret over being white, uh, is to give money to the white kinds of, right kinds of things. Because you're racist. So this is just part of what you, this is just part of what you do. So he's, man, the, 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 dude, is, the dude has found something. So he's written this book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. He's written other stuff as well. But this is one of the most well-known passages out of this book um, because of how he finishes this thought. And how he finishes this thought, again, helps us to understand, no, this is what they really think. It's, it's not that, eh, maybe, you know, this all sounds pretty radical. But no, this is really what they think. The defining question is whether the discrimination is creating equity or inequity. Okay, so let's stop there very quickly. Equity is the same outcome. Equality is equality of opportunity. So if there is any difference, you know, this is how the thought goes. If there is any difference of outcome between a white person and a person of color, there is therefore necessarily racism. Let me say that one more time. If there's any situation where there is a disparity of outcome between a person of color and a white person, if there's a difference there at all, it is necessarily due to racism. So the only way to expunge racism from our culture is to make sure that every outcome is the same, to promote equity, not equality before the law. So the vocabulary does this. It feels a little bit like smoke to us, but it's important to understand what they mean and what they're after when they use this language and why they use it. So the defining question is whether the, the discrimination is creating equity or inequity. If discrimination, listen to the language, if discrimination is creating equity, then it is anti-racist. If discrimination is creating inequity, then it is racist. Someone reproducing inequity through permanently assisting an overrepresented racial group into wealth and power is entirely different than someone challenging that inequity by temporarily assisting an underrepresented racial group into relative wealth and power until equity is reached. So one way of looking at that is hardcore affirmative action until all of the outcomes are exactly the same. But then he says this, and this is, this is, this is what you see posted sometimes one way or another. The only remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination. The only remedy to present discrimination is future discrimination. And he's talking about systems. We have to build discrimination into our systems to get to the end that we think is equitable, to get to equity, okay? So we have to build, we have to proactively build discrimination into our systems. Now, thankfully, Ibram Kendi has actually told us what constitutional amendment 
to pass to make all of this happen. No joke, inside of this book, he hints at this. He gets asked about this in a, um, uh, gets asked about this in an interview with Politico, um, making you, oh, there we go, bam, bam, there we go. So this is his concept of a proposed amendment to the U.S. Constitution. It would establish and permanently fund the Department of Anti-Racism, the DOA, comprised of formally trained experts on racism and no political appointees. I wonder who would train them, and if they're not a political appointee, how long are they going to be in office? For a very long time is the answer to that question. The DOA would be responsible for pre-clearing all local, state, and federal public policies to ensure they won't yield racial inequity, monitor those policies, investigate private racist policies. What does that mean? Investigate private racist policies when racial inequity services and monitor public officials for expressions of racist ideas. That is, that is not Soviet at all. <laughs> not at all. We're going to monitor everything you say to make sure it aligns with what we think you should say. What could go wrong with that? I mean, come on, people. The DOA would be empowered with disciplinary tools so another department in the United States government that could actually come for you to wield, to wield over and against policymakers and public officials who do not voluntarily, which is already a contradiction, who do not voluntarily change their racist policy and ideas. I mean, who could disagree with, with all of that, right? <clears throat> they would, I just, this is incredible, right? They'd be responsible for pre-clearing. So they would pre-clear all local, state, and federal policy. So would you ever vote for a city council member again? Would you ever vote for a local um, uh, tax bond issue again? Would you, ever, would you ever vote for a state issue on the ballot again? Even if you did, would it mean anything? No, because it has to be pre-cleared by the DOA. All right? So there's a lot going on here. One of the things that's going on here is I hope we're seeing that critical race theory, the diversity training some of you have to go through, the things that we see, the headlines that we see, the stuff that we watch, this is a totalizing narrative. This is intended to explain and manage all of life. Does that make sense? He actually says, we're going to have disciplinary powers. This is what he wants, disciplinary powers to make sure we handle private racist policies. And anybody who doesn't, I just love that language, voluntarily change racist policies to be in line with what we think. So this, this, is, this is everything. So what else do you call a worldview that is intended to manage, control, direct, fix and punish every part of the human life. You call it a religion. So this is the growing reflection on CRT now. 
Um, a lot of people, and it's not just Christians, a lot of people who are deeply bothered by some of this stuff, some of whom in other contexts are very outspoken atheists, are just calling this a religion. There are several Christian theologians who say this has all of the harm hallmarks of what we would call a cult, okay? Hardcore fundamentalism, hardcore us versus them, hardcore means of punishing those who disagree with us, right? So this is a religion. Let's, let's just lay it on the table. This is a religion. This is not fixing things around the edges. So critical race theory, especially in that larger universe of critical theory and everything else that it covers. And by the way, it's not just critical race theory. It's critical social justice theory, critical legal theory, critical queer theory, critical feminist studies. Um, and this, this is one of the newest ones, critical fat studies. Um, literally, uh, critical fat, I mean, physically, obese studies, critical fat studies. You can get degrees in all of these things. So you've got this whole great big umbrella religion with all of these denominations underneath it and CRT being one of those. So let's, let's talk about how CRT is a totalizing narrative, how it is a religion. I'm gonna, we're gonna walk through some of these points and then what we're gonna spend time doing um, we may get to some of it tonight, and then we'll just keep doing the theological reflection um, over the next couple of weeks at least to make sure that we not only understand all of this, but that we're doing good biblical and gospel reflection um, on what this says versus everything else that we're reading about and that we're learning. So CRT has its own God. It does. It has its own God. It's not actually even intended to be an atheistic point of view. Um, all of the, and you probably don't know this because stuff like this doesn't get talked about very much, but uh, there were three or four primary founders of uh, BLM, of Black Lives Matters. Um, none of them are Christians. None of them are atheists. All of them worship pagan gods from their African past. They will write and speak freely about channeling the voices of ancient African slaves who've been dead for decades, if not hundreds of years. So they're necromancers. So it's not intended to be atheism, but whatever religion and spirituality you bring into it, they're fine as long as it's not, yeah, the, the, the major theistic phase. Islam, however, is its own special thing. And at some point in this study, I promise you, we're going to get to this really strange alliance between this hardcore political left and Islam. And we'll, we'll talk about that at some point because that's exciting. But their God, the political doctrines derived from Karl Marx and all of his disciples. This, this is their version of God. This is where, this is where we're all headed. Um, this is how we understand. This is the organizing principle of humanity of everything that is significant to us um, is Karl Marx in this larger political philosophy. So this is their version of God or of a God. They have a version of anthropology, what human beings are like and how we interact with each other in the world around us. All right, so they have a version of anthropology. We're going to talk about that tonight, maybe if we have a couple of minutes. Um, original sin they have their own version of original sin. An original sin in CRT is racism. It's all racism. Top to bottom, inside out, 
That's the original sin. That's the one thing that has to be dealt with that's gonna fix everything. They have a, their own sort of doctrine of creation. I don't mean the act of creation, I mean of physical creation itself. And it is their version of radical environmentalism. Okay, the, the Gaia spirit sort of stuff that is very much a part of this larger group of people. So they have a doctrine of what this physical world is like and how it's put together. They have their own vision of justice. They have their own doctrine of justice. And it's this notion of equity instead of equality. They have their own prophets, the heroes of their doctrine. We owe a lot to people like Antonio Gramsci and Foucault and Derrida. And they list about another half dozen of other names, many of which most of us haven't you know, really heard about or know much about. But they've got their own prophets. We go back, we read these people, and we know now how to understand the world around us. They have their own priests, the academic experts and the diversity trainers. So these are the ones who mediate between us common folk and God, their ideology. So they come amongst us and they write and they speak, they publish YouTube videos and they do diversity training and they teach us what their God is like and how we can appease their God. So they have a priesthood, okay? That's, they have their own saviors. They're a group of activists. They need revolutionaries. They need activists. They need people who will actually force change on the system. So they have their own version of saviors. They have a doctrine of salvation. And their doctrine of salvation is going to make us talk about this, this crazy Old Testament practice of what's called the scapegoat. Um, who are the scapegoats? There are still scapegoats. It's actually this really interesting universal reality amongst human behavior is that everybody's looking for a scapegoat. Who is the scapegoat? And then works righteousness. You have to do this, you have to do this, you have to do this, you have to do this. If this is the color of your skin, this is what you have to do. If this is the color of your skin, this is what you have to do. This is, this is you do, 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 do. Um, one of their, one of their um, primary authors, one of their popularizers, her name is Robin D'Angelo. She's the gal who wrote the book White Fragility. Um, she's the one who's at the, one of the two or three who are at the head of all the diversity training that's come out in the last uh, 12 months, 24 months or so forth. She says in one of her works, speaking of how whites should, how white people should um, position themselves in this new world, she literally says in that book, you are never done. You're just going to have to do this over and over and over. You will never be done with this. But the only right thing for you to do is to struggle against your own whiteness and racism. So that's a version of works righteousness. You'll never be good enough to reach salvation. Spiritual formation, forgiveness, and redemption. You have to go through special trainings. You have to go through what they call struggle sessions. You have to pay reparations. That's their version, again, of redemption and of forgiveness. They have a doctrine of revival. Who do we know who has been significantly touched? I, I mean touched by this idea. Uh, their doctrine of revival is this colloquial word to be woke, to become woke. So you will see sometimes the language of the great awakening inside of their literature and their articles playing off of, obviously, these couple of cycles in American history where we have, through God's handiwork, these great awakenings. 
the more savvy of the political people will say great awakening, but they mean great awokening, okay? So the more savvy among us won't use this strange word. They'll use the phrase that we all know and we can trust, right? I mean, if you use a phrase we know, we can trust that phrase, right? They have their own doctrine of the family. So in the, uh, the BLM About Us page that they removed, but you can still find you know, millions of screenshots of out there around the world, they actually say inside of that About Us page, we work to disrupt the nuclear family. So the language about family in that page of theirs is strange. So they have a lot of language about supporting single mothers. So again, well-meaning people read that and they go, yeah, that sounds pretty good. Um, but it's also wrapped up in the same sentence with we're supporting the family rights of those who are pansexual and transgender um, and not cisgender. And um, we actually work to disrupt the nuclear family, mom and dad and a couple of kids. We want to pull that apart. Why would you want to pull that apart? Well, you guys now know the answer to that question because Antonio Gramsci told us we have to pull the family apart if we're going to get enough revolutionaries on the street. You guys remember uh, the article about uh, the rioters in Portland? They're all fatherless. They're all fatherless. You need homes without fathers if you're going to get those people in those streets night after night after night for month after month after month. They've got no other direction in life whatsoever. Also, little known fact. <laughs> I'm full of little known facts. All of them very useful, however, right? Um, every, there, there's not a single mention on that BLM About Us page, not a single mention about fathers or men, not a single reference. All of the original founders of BLM are fatherless. None of them have fathers in their home or, or in their lives. So you wonder if there were about four fathers out there who had done their duty 40 years ago, how much of this might have been different, right? There's a hardcore version of insiders and outsiders, anti-racists and everyone else, those who are woke and everybody else. And we've got to fix everybody else. So this is where cancel culture comes from. This is where Ibram Kendi can literally say out loud, we want to be able to control everything everybody says so that none of it is racist. And then they have their own version of eschatology, its vision of social and political utopia. Okay? All of this is theology. All of this is religion. It's just a very different religion than what you and I are accustomed to. So it is a competing faith. So one of the questions is, has this become a part of the American church at all? <laughs> okay, some of you are already like one and a half steps ahead of me, right? <clears throat> let, me, uh, let me throw a couple of these things at you. Um, two other books. If you're, if, you're, if you're interested in kind of digging further through this, I've got a few more books up front here. These are all phenomenal. Um, this one is written by uh, Vody Bauckham, uh, Dr. Vody Bauckham, called Fault Lines. And this is not just about um, what critical race theory is, but this is primarily about how it's made its way into the evangelical church. 
Um, so there's, there's a certain, for a guy like me with, with credentials in the assemblies of God, um, there's, there's a bit of sort of um, denominational scandal inside of this book. He names names, um, which I get a kick out of, but most people don't name names in their books. Um, but he is phenomenal. If you don't like reading books, you can look him up on YouTube. Um, watch him at 1.5 speed, and, and you know, you're, you're going to be just fine. Um, and he has lots about this, but then he's a magnificent preacher as well, okay? He's very reformed in his theology. Uh, so for some of us, that's going to be a little bit different, but this book is, is phenomenal. So here's part of what he says. The anti-racist movement has many of the hallmarks of a cult, including staying close enough to the Bible to avoid immediate detection and hiding the fact that it has new theology and a new glossary of terms that diverge ever so slightly from Christian orthodoxy. So we're going to talk about racism, and we're going to talk about justice, and we're going to talk about equity. We're going to use this language, but we're not going to tell you what we mean by that. But because you're a, a Christian, you're going to go, oh, that sounds, that sounds pretty good. In fact, I'm going to throw that phrase into my sermon, and I'm going to go walk right down that path, right? So he's right about this. This is how cults work. This, this is how false teachings work. This is how health and wealth and prosperity gospel teaching works. You listen to it for a little while and you go, oh man, all that sounds great until you go, what did I just hear? <laughs> it just does that. It does that just enough. Same thing with critical race theory. The other book I want to specifically suggest to you tonight is by a gal, her name is Noelle Maring. Um, she is a, she's a Catholic theologian, and she does the vast majority of her writing on the theology of the family. And then she puts out this book called Awake Not Woke. And as you can tell, it's a very nice little, you know, this, I've got other books here that are 400 pages long. Most of you would rather read this book, right? Phenomenal, absolutely wonderful book. Very quotable, very understandable, but it's a Christian response to the cult of progressive ideology. And so here's part of what she says inside of that book. While woke ideology appears as a benevolent fight for justice, it is far from that. It lures us in with an appeal to our better natures, then replaces intelligible principles with distorted ones, resulting in incoherence and chaos. She, she's a very memorable and, and quotable writer. So that's where we're going to end tonight. And then we're going to start digging into some of the, that list of things that I gave you. So here's their theology. They have this doctrine of this and this and this and this. And here's what we mean by that. Some of that we've already touched on because of what we've gone through over the last few weeks. Some of them I want to make sure we understand to an even greater degree. So we're going to dig into some of those things and start doing some of the, 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 the hardcore theological work on some of these issues over the next couple of weeks. All right, so let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful again for this time together this evening, the chance that we have to open your word, the chance that we have, Father, to take a look at the world around us. And Lord, I, I do pray that part of the consequence of a study like this is, is not political anger or fear or frustration, but the kind of thing that the Apostle Paul wants us to keep before our eyes, to recognize with whom our struggle is and, and with who it's not. And Father, to see through those kinds of eyes, to pray through those kinds of eyes, to work through those kinds of eyes, to do what the Apostle Paul has told us we need to do, 
to put on the belt of truth and the breastplate of the righteousness of God and to be ready to walk into this world with the gospel of actual peace and not a gospel of division and hate, but one of actual peace and reconciliation. Teach us to do that. Teach us to do that well. Father, we're thankful for this evening. We ask your grace upon it all. In your magnificent name we pray. Amen.